Welcome to Profiles. This is WFIU's program of conversation and interviews. I'm Annie Corrigan. Thanks for tuning in. I'm so thrilled to have Claudia Roden in the studio today. Claudia is a cookbook writer, a cultural anthropologist. She's written 11 cookbooks. She was born in Cairo, Egypt. She was educated in Paris. Then she moved to London, where she is still based. And now she's in Bloomington with us. Thank you for visiting. Thank you for having me. So I said cookbook author. I said cultural anthropologist. I could have also called you a storyteller. I could have called you an historian. There are plenty of other titles that I could have given you because your work is so diverse. What is the first title that you latch on to most? About who I am? I just say food writers. I don't say anything else because I didn't actually. I'm not an academic. I just do everything that interests me. And I've been doing it now for so long, almost 60 years when I started, when nobody, nobody then was talking about food or interested in food. So all of us who were interested, we were just enthusiasts, as we call it. And I guess if you call yourself a food writer, that incorporates history and culture and storytelling, all of these things and recipes. Yes, exactly. So let's go back then to 1968, your first book, A Book of Middle Eastern Food. So I want to just talk about the process of collecting recipes for that book. What, what did you do to get the food that you put in that book? Yes. Well, at that time, or not at that time, but earlier, in 1956, when I was an art student in London, all of a sudden, because of the aborted Suez War, between Egypt and uh, France, England, and Israel. They, the three countries had attacked Egypt because NASA had nationalized the Suez Canal that belonged actually to Britain and France, who had built it. And so they objected and they attacked. But then America told them to stop. That's why I called it aborted. But uh, in retaliation... Uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser just threw out all the Jews because Israel had taken part. And within just a few weeks, they had to go. And they were about 80,000, and they all went. And myself in, in, in London, suddenly my parents joined us, uh, myself and my two brothers. And for the next 20 years... We kept having uh, floods, really. We were inundated by Jews from Egypt who had become refugees, who were deciding where to settle and moving and stopping in London. And so I was seeing them. And at that time, one thing that everybody was asking, apart from, have you heard from so-and-so, have you heard from so-and-so? We were a very closely knit community, but all of a sudden, we were going to be dispersed all over the world and probably never seeing each other again. And everybody was exchanging recipes and saying, I'll never see you again. Can you give me the recipe for that chocolate cake? Can you give me the recipe? And people also said, I'll give you my recipe, even without being asked, because I want you to remember me. So there was this frantic or passionate 
exchange of recipes, which uh, never happened before. In Egypt, everybody was jealous of their recipes. All the women were rivals about how they cooked. And then suddenly now this was something. And to me, uh, it became something really important and relevant. And I just started taking note of everybody's recipe. That's how I started collecting. And people were... They were telling me the recipe was given to them by their mother, their grandmother. And the thing was that in Egypt, the Jewish community wasn't just an Egyptian community. It was a mosaic of communities of people from all over the Ottoman world. My Three of my grandparents were from Aleppo, and one of my grandmothers was from Istanbul, And so people were saying, this is from Aleppo. And they were saying, this is from my mother, uh, my mother's recipe or my grandmother's recipe. And at that time, I was just 20 when it happened. And uh, my mother was 45. They were mostly women my mother's age. And they were, they were saying my mother and my grandmother. So I guess many of the recipes would have been uh, from the 19th century. People were still cooking them. And I have to say, that's what people are cooking today in London, because they are popular now. I'm so struck by this idea of, I'm never going to see you again. Have this recipe so that you'll never forget me. Yes. I'm so struck by that. So they really thought that this was an integral part of how they define themselves, these dishes. Exactly. It was really, that's when I realized that food was not just a dish for sustenance, not just for pleasure, but it meant so much more. It meant identity. It meant roots. So then you're so much more than a cookbook writer if you're collecting these recipes that people are so touched by and connect with so deeply. You had to somehow personalize them and put the person into the recipe. Is that true? I had to do that. And uh, at that time in Britain and in London, in particular, people were not interested in food at all. Uh, Food was just not a subject. Uh, They wouldn't dream of making it a subject of study. But it it was even a taboo subject. Like at that time, sex and money were taboo. You never spoke about them. And if I asked people what they cooked or I told them what they cooked, I had a look of horror and embarrassment. But also, uh, when I told people I was collecting recipes, uh, they were so horrified even about that. A lot of my friends were saying, why don't you paint? You should be painting. And when I told them it was about Middle Eastern recipes that I was collecting, they would say, oh, is that eyeballs and testicles? (laughs) And so I just uh, felt that really I had to, I must say that at that time, I never thought of publishing. It took me a long time before I, I decided to try to publish, and I had collected so much, uh, not just of my own community, but going around to look for Iranians, Iraqis, North Africans from everywhere, because I I somehow just got, I think, do you say smitten? Sure. But uh, I was so enjoying 
this thing of collecting. That time I was working for Alitalia, Italian Airlines, but collecting recipes and also uh, things around the recipes, which we called background. I was very somehow enthralled about that. But nobody else seemed to be interested or wanting <laughs> that at the time. But everything has changed now. Yeah, London yeah. is uh, totally enthralled by food. Mm-hmm. A logistical question about writing a cookbook. I work with chefs and I'm in the kitchen with them recording recipes as they make them. It is so difficult sometimes to get them to give me exact measurements and proportions. They say they're just cooking by feel. They're just making it up. So as you're collecting recipes, did you get proportions and measurements from people? No, they didn't have them. Uh, In those days, there wasn't any cookbooks at all in Egypt of any kind. So people had never, never, it was just passed down in the family. And it was by looking and by feel that you learned. It wasn't by reading. Uh, And people would tell me uh, the kind of thing, for instance, for a dough. They would say, put as much flour as it takes. And I was saying, how much could it take? How do I know that's how much it takes? And they would say things like, well, while you're doing, when you start Uh, working the dough with your hand, with one hand, with the other hand, feel the lobe of your ear. And when it feels the same, then that's how much it takes. That's it. So there were that kind of explanations and telling me how to know how much to put. But you're... You have recipes with proportions. So did you try out all these recipes? I tried every one. So I tried every single recipe. And and that's what I do. And since then, I've been doing that all the time. And so you say, okay, half teaspoon of cumin and three cups yes. of flour. And- yes, and very often I think that they were more right than we are, as you Just know. doing it by feel. Yes, because the flour actually... Uh, uh, flowers are all vary, but even flowers made from wheat that grow in the same field, every year they absorb a different amount of water. And it can be quite a, a big difference. So uh, how much it takes is in a way sensible. Mm-hmm. This book, uh, the book of Middle Eastern food, was updated recently. I'm wondering if you can Tell me about the new edition, what's different, what's been added? No, it hasn't been. It's another book that's been updated, (laughs) the Italian book. But I did certainly update the Middle Eastern book, but many years ago, because when I started, a lot of the things that I wanted to use weren't available. So I was giving uh, was giving substitutes. If you can't have pomegranate syrup, use lemon and sugar or tamarind and this. And but also our ways of cooking had changed a bit. We didn't want to uh, deep fry. We could when we could bake. Uh, our ideas of healthy eating and so. But that was maybe twenty years ago that I I didn't update. But since then, I have done a few other Middle Eastern books, one Arabesque, but it was several years ago. But what I did just recently update was an Italian book. And it was an Italian 
every region of Italy, region by region. 30 years ago, I traveled in Italy in every single region, every corner of Italy. And I did a book that was recipes, but also it told you the story of the region and the story of the products because I went on being interested in finding out more because of the way I started. And so that's what I did back then. And so now the publishers, when it uh, it took five years to do, quite a while, and then it was published 25 years ago, and uh, the publisher did an um, anniversary edition, and they said we want to put all new photographs in and to go all over Italy. And I said, well, if you do, then I want to update it. And so I went back to see what's changed and what is new. And also a lot of things had changed. I mean, mainly not the recipes. Funnily enough, they've become more traditional than before, even. What do you mean by traditional? In their recipes. How so? Traditional? How so? Because when I first traveled... Uh, or rather more attached to tradition. When I first traveled, a lot, uh, there was what was called Nuova Cucina. It was Nouvelle Cuisine, in Italian Nouvelle Cuisine. And because of French food guides, Goemio, they did a guide of Italy for uh, people, French-speaking people, and they would only put a, a restaurant in if they were doing creative, innovative cuisine. And so a lot of restaurants felt obliged to do that. And then the kind of recipes that I found at the time, but I would always say, I don't want that. I just want the local traditional. (laughs) And uh, you'd find recipes like risotto tricolore with uh, strawberries and kiwi. Or a ravioli with whiskey and salmon, smoked salmon. So those kinds of things have disappeared. (laughs) No restaurant does them, except one recipe that has uh, remained from that period, and it is spaghetti with curry. Hmm. And somehow people like it, but I don't. I'm trying to imagine what that would taste like. I don't know. I don't know if I would like that. I don't. Huh. This this idea of of tradition. Let's let's stick with this. How do you determine this recipe is a good, authentic representation of this dish versus this one? This one uses ten tomatoes. This one uses three tomatoes. How do you how do you reconcile differences in recipes of the same dish? Yes, I mean what I researched was home cooking. Uh, not restaurant food, because that's what I'm about. And I was asking every single person that I met, every single one, everywhere, even on a bench or on the train, (laughs) and then the whole train would come and speak, tell me what they were doing when I started with one. And I would say, what is your favorite recipe? Where does your parent come from? What region? But they would give me a recipe, and right away, there were several people who would come and say, no, that's not how I do it. And so, yes, I did get several versions. But the, I, the same with dealing with the people who left Egypt. There were uh, different versions. But as you say, 
a little bit of tomato, a bit more tomato, but nobody went quite different. They weren't fusion. They weren't, they never introduced something that wasn't there before. And uh, people then would say, no, this isn't it. Uh, this isn't it. When it's not it, it's not it. And so people recognize something as being traditional. Uh, and I, th- I don't think I use the word authentic. It's got a, people have a controversial <laughs> tone. And uh, because on, on one hand, nowadays, in countries that are not Italy, away from Italy, a whole Italian cuisine developed completely different from what is in Italy. And uh, this is for several reasons, but basically that's what I was told by young people who have, I call them young because they're younger than me. (laughs) They're probably not young in their mind, (laughs) but they are chefs in restaurants, their own, that are Italian in America, for instance, or in England. And they've told me that if you do traditional uh, as it is in Italy, you're considered an ethnic restaurant. You're, if you're an ethnic restaurant, you can't ask for a lot of money or rather a good amount of money. Hmm. And if you are a creative, inventive chef with your own dishes and your own signature, then you're valued. You valued people will come. And the same with people who write for magazines and newspapers. The editors always say, give us a new recipe, your own, and it is your take. So everybody has to do their take, their innovation. And what happens is they can be really great cooks. They have good taste. They can invent well. Then they have their restaurant. They get an award. They do a book. Then all the ones who come up afterwards, they get the book, and then they do the take of the take. And then there is the take of the take of the take. (laughs) And uh, you see, that's what happens. And I think we are a Western society where innovation is valued above tradition. And then you have to sort of wade through all the different iterations of these recipes to find the original nugget. No, because uh, they didn't change much. Uh, What happened was that we didn't have things. When I started writing 30 years ago, you couldn't find ricotta and mozzarella Uh in in a supermarket. You couldn't find all the different breads, all the different pasta, all the different... We couldn't get polenta. You couldn't buy polenta 30 years ago. And uh, then you couldn't have... I think now you do easily get soft-shell crabs here, for instance. But in Britain, we could never get a dream of getting and things like baby octopus. So all a whole lot of things that we could never get, we can get. But what I found in Italy, what I have changed about there, is that when I went the first time, I was very keen uh, to get all kinds of home cooking, but also festive dishes, which or cucina nobile, as they called it in some parts in Sicily, for instance. And cucina nobile would have things that they called, for instance, timbalo, a timbal. And that was actually 
a mold in a mold, layers of pasta, of meatballs, of aubergines. And there were so many different layers, and then you heated it up in the oven, you reheated it, then it came out, and it was, it was a pyramid or a sphere or something. And actually, when I retried them in London this year, to do them. I just thought, I can't be bothered. (laughs) I just can't be bothered. And when I found nobody in Italy was doing them, because everybody's now working. Women are all working. I haven't got time. Actually, men are working who never worked before. No, no, of course, they always work, but they never cooked at home. And now men are cooking. And so they are now... Instead of learning from their mother, they're learning from the internet and from television. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, people want to make life easy for themselves before, I think, what the age of mama spending a day in the kitchen making pasta has gone forever. They don't. And so they buy it. Sometimes if they can afford it, on the whole, they do if they can buy from artisans who make the tortellini and all the little things that they are not going to make anymore. They do make the sauce, for instance, when they get home. And so really, that's why I'm saying that they do want their traditional food. They still love their food, but uh, and they want it traditional. And they know that they vary from family to family. They actually, on the Internet, if you see the Italian Internet, they often say, this is my mother's or my grandmother's recipe. And they sometimes have a photo of the grandma cooking or even a video of the grandma cooking. But So they do appreciate that. But then they make it easier and they make it simpler. And what's happening, I find that... Every generation in Italy and in other countries, they look in their, in their past, in their cuisine that has developed over centuries for the things that are easy. Now, before they were looking for things that suited their society at that time, their mother wasn't working. But nowadays, uh, it's the easy things. And also the cheap things. Mm-hmm. And also what is fashionable now is is the simplest, simplest working man's food and peasant food. So uh, a few dishes that before I had collected, because I had collected hundreds more than I put in the first book, uh, there they were people, that's what they were cooking now. And so that was the kind of change that happened in my book. Mm-hmm. Oh, what a great explanation. Thank you. Food writer Claudia Roden is my guest today on Profiles. I want to go all the way back to your childhood in Egypt. Who was doing the cooking in your house? We had a cook. And I was explaining because uh, we were Jews and we were Jews from Syria and from Turkey on one side, we cooked different kinds of food. We were also very Europeanized. We spoke French at home and Italian because we had Italian nannies. All of us had Italian nannies. They were Slovenes from from Friuli, Venezia, Giulia, uh, because Slovenia had been incorporated into Italy. It's back in Slovenia now. And so we had a mixture of food that we did at home. But the cooks were 
people from the villages were always men, and they came from Upper Egypt. They had no idea how people cooked in Cairo, where I lived, and they had no idea how our families cooked. So they learned. Uh, so the women had to teach the cooks, and the cooks got to be better than than them in the end because they also stayed forever. That was the pattern, and they would go home to the village. Rarely, sadly, for their wives and their children, but but this is how they lived. They lived on the roofs of the buildings where we had flats, and they so all the cooks were at the top cooking for themselves. Uh, they were given money to cook what they liked, and it was different from what they cooked in our homes. Wow. Well, then let's go a little bit forward in your timeline. When you turn 15 years old, you go to Paris to boarding school. Yes. We're on the campus of Indiana University. You know, these 18-year-old kids are away from home for the very first time, eating new food in cafeterias. What do you remember about your food life in boarding school in Paris? Well, uh, I was in a boarding school, but in a big lycée. Uh, the boarding school was in a uh, – the lycée was – uh, in the Porte de Vincennes at Hélène Boucher, and it was what they called a lycée pilote. It means they were experimental, they advanced in teaching methods. It was a state school, and uh, uh, one of the things they're experimenting is giving us good food. <laughs> How lucky! <laughs> and uh, it was not expensive food, but they taught us how to even, you know, when we started, we'd have just a little plate of radishes. We had a piece of butter. We had some salt. And, you know, dipping uh, in the salt and eating with butters, radibur. And we would have this, we always had wine. But then all the schools in France had wine in those days, anyhow. Uh, and where there were the girls who were six and seven, they drank wine. It was a bit watered down, but it was. Uh, but so I did have good food. My younger brother was at a boarding school in Paris. It was also a lycée. It was so bad that they kept having strikes, uh, hunger strikes. <laughs> it means they wouldn't eat. This children, and then they would come out the staff with ice cream <laughs> to get them to break their fast. But no, we had good food. But at the boarding school, then we'd go to the boarding school. It was a villa in the Bois de Vincennes. It was all very beautiful. And all the girls were from the colonies of France. They were from Africa, from Vietnam. It was called Indochine in those days, from North Africa. And uh, Yes, I do remember that things we would uh, we did get good food then, really good food. But uh, I remember sometimes our fun thing was to try and make with what we had on the table the most disgusting possible food, <laughs> and try by mixing kids will be the kids. marmalade with the jam with the thing, and then eating it and saying sheesh, you know, you eat it. <laughs> The beginnings of maybe your curiosity about food? Yes. Maybe. <laughs> Let's keep going forward. After you've written your first book in the 70s, you're teaching cooking classes in your kitchen. Yes. I'd love to talk about that. Who are the sorts of people who signed up to take cooking lessons from you? Yes, all kinds. <laughs> and because I had just uh, written a book that was called, I think, Picnic, and uh, the journalist who came to interview me he said, what are you going to do next? And I said, I think I'm going to 
give cookery classes, and I got inundated <laughs> hundreds of letters saying they want to come to cookery. So I just was terrified. And so with my daughters, I was a single mother by then, three children. And uh, so one of the youngest one knew how to plan, how to plan to do some classes, morning classes, afternoon classes, uh, weekend classes for people who came from far. They would, people came from Scotland, from Ireland even. I can't believe it now, but I had already, my Middle Eastern book had had been out for a long time, so I was teaching Middle Eastern. Mainly, that's what people wanted. And uh, uh, we, we, I always had 10 people. I had some evening classes, and sometimes a whole publishing house decided they wanted to come, and everybody wanted to learn. And there were men. In those days, for a man to want to come to learn to cook was something. So you thought, oh, well, you've, you must be good enough then if something worthwhile if men want to come. So there was the financial director, the editors. There was one uh, company who came, and they always remembered it as, as the great time they ever had. And, and so I was there telling them stories about the food. <laughs> and uh, and also they were all cooking because uh, somehow I, I before I invited people to come, I had gone to cookery schools to see how they worked. I worked for them to learn how they did it. They became friends and they helped me to set up and all that. And so I did get everybody to cook um, uh, everything that there was. So there was 10 people. I have a very big huge, table huge in the kitchen, kitchen. and a big dining table where we could sit always 15 round a table, a round table. So you ate a meal at the end of these classes? We always ate a meal, and we uh, uh, that was part of it, that we discussed the food and the taste. And also before that, I gave them cards with the recipes, but I said, I'm not giving you measures uh, of things like spices, uh, because I want you to decide uh, to trust your taste. And then when you see how much you put, we'll see how much they vary. Actually, they realize that if you trust your taste, you don't go wrong. You go wrong when you just copy or you do something. And, uh, and then you say, oh, it had too much lemon. But why did you put too much? You could have stopped. You know, you have to taste. Did you enjoy teaching? I did, because it was the first time that I met people who actually were cooking my dishes that I wrote about, because I never knew, uh, or rather people would tell me, oh, I've been cooking from this and that, but they didn't tell me anything that, you know, that they really wanted to know about what. Uh, and so there, there was a feedback, instant feedback about, and there were people, for instance, especially Americans, <laughs> who were uh, telling me, why don't you do it another way, you know, and what about this way? And there is, for instance, a kibbe. A kibbe is something like a, uh, it has a torpedo shape. It's a long, like a torpedo shape, and it is cracked wheat and meat uh, casing that you, uh, or shell, that you do by pounding and pounding the meat with a thing. Actually, we could put it in the food blender um, to make a soft paste. So you make this paste, and then 
like a pot, you have to keep hollowing it and then you fill it with a filling of fried onions, minced beef, pine nuts, raisins, <laughs> and herb, and not herbs, parsley, and spices. And then you close it at the end. And when this young American girl was, uh, she did it once and she said, why don't you just flatten it? fill it, put it in the middle and close it up. And it worked. And I told my father that uh, because I some of the leftovers I would bring to my father and mother. And then he said, but that's cheating. <laughs> <laughs> but it was easier. But it was easier. And that's, <laughs> as you said, that's what gets passed on in the later generations. What's yes. easy, what's quick. Would you ever consider teaching again? I keep being asked, and I keep saying, no, I'm too old, but I keep doing it, only for special. For instance, I was invited to Ballymaloo Festival of Food, of food and wine. It is a literary festival. There are people talking and also uh, demonstrating. And I told Darina Allen, who is the great Darina, who has a cookery school there. And so she said, Claudia, you must demonstrate. I said, no, I'm too old, you know. <laughs> I've stopped. And then she said, well, do three dishes. And when I got there, they said, we're doing eight, but we're helping you. So I had all these young helpers, and we did eight. How did it go? And it was fantastic. Well, mainly because they were good. <laughs> but I was still having to do it. And uh, just before I came, just two days before I left, <laughs> I did a school, Cheda. Cheda is Jewish school on uh, for children who are learning to be bar mitzvah. My granddaughter is being bat mitzvah. And they asked me, could you come and do a demonstration, get the, a demonstration for the children to cook? And I kept saying, I can't because I'm, I'm actually writing my uh, talk for Indianapolis, you know. But anyhow, I did. And we did filo with cheese, filo cigars. And then when I got there, there were all these children, not but mitras. They put in all those who are six years old and seven years old. So, but everyone got to do filo with cheese or several. And then we were put many long tables together. And the joy that they had to make them, then we cooked them, then we ate them. And so, you know, they were happy, and I was happy to see them doing it. Oh, fun. Well, this is a perfect segue to talk about your book of Jewish food. Claudia Roden is our guest today on Profiles, really enjoying your company. It took you 16 years to write this book. Why so long? Yes, because, first of all, I never thought there was such a thing as Jewish food. <laughs> well, even our food, at first, we didn't know our food was Jewish, but we were cooking it. And it's gradually that I could see in my first book, which was Arab food, North African food, Middle Eastern food, I did have many recipes that I say, this is a Jewish Sabbath dish. This is a Jewish Passover dish. Uh, I was saying that. And so, uh, but I didn't know the extent. And most of the peoples who left the countries in the 50s, uh, a lot of Jews from countries that are not Eastern Europe, Russia and Poland and and Europe, uh, all those Jews that we call now generally Sephardi, actually they're Indian Jews, Italian Jews, they're not necessarily Sephardi. Sephardi means Spain. Spain means those people who came out of Spain. They came out 
from all the Muslim countries. The Sephardim was where, for the big part, they were from Muslim countries. But once Israel was became a state, their life was precarious. And so they all gradually left from all those countries that were. Uh, but not all of them. Some of them are still there. In Iran, for instance, there's still the Jewish community. But a lot of them did leave, and they left Iraq, and they left North Africa for all kinds of reasons. But in the end, it was the reason because of the conflict between Israel and 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 uh, the the Muslim world. The Arabs had attacked Israel, and as soon as it was uh, it was at war, and so. All these people came out and they started, I mean, I started writing before they started writing their cookbooks. So I had to go and find out what do you cook and and finding out what people cooked and then gradually understanding which of the dishes would they call Jewish. And they were Jew, uh, dishes that they had usually for the Sabbath or that they had for their festival. I always say most of my dishes in my book are Sabbath dishes because that's how they know them as Jewish because they cooked them all their life on a Sabbath. And they were, in every country, they were different. Sometimes, for instance, in uh, North Africa, every single uh, city had their own couscous for Friday night. And the same in Turkey, the Jews who came from Spain and who came from all over, every uh, cities had different Jewish dishes. So somehow the Jewish, Sephardi Jewish dishes are so varied that is never ending. In fact, people criticize me and say that I haven't given enough space to the Ashkenazi dishes because two-thirds of the Jews of the world are Ashkenazi. I only gave them a third of the book. But the reason is that the Ashkenazim, their cooking, like their culture, is one culture. It means even that they came from Poland, from Russia, from Hungary, from everywhere, it's because they had the same history, the same roots. They all come from, their culture comes from Germany in the Middle Ages, and nearly all the dishes that they eat now for Sabbath, they were what they ate in Germany in the Middle Ages. And that's something for me was my research, was to find also they, they moved east because of the persecution in Germany, because they were in, in ghettos, because that's where they formed their culture in the ghettos, and that's why they speak Yiddish. And so their food and their language, Yiddish, was what they was their baggage of their culture that they took when they went east. And east meant Poland. And they were in Poland, they were invited by the aristocracy to manage their lands and to live in what we call shtetls. And shtetls was the life of the Jews for hundreds of years in Poland. And then when Poland was divided... Uh, the parts of Poland that were Ukraine, Belarusia, Galicia, Galicia was still always Poland. A lot of its domains became were, were uh, occupied by Russia. So suddenly, the Jews who were in Poland became part of Russia. And in Russia, the Empress 
Catherine the Great uh, decided the Jews can't come out of where they are, and it's the pale of settlement. So they lived in either in ghettos or in a pale of settlement in on themselves, closed in on themselves. So they went on cooking more or less the same things in the different regions, but with some differences. And so, uh, for instance, in Lithuania, they ate uh, more lemony dishes uh, with sorrel, with things. Uh, in uh, Galicia, in uh, Poland, they liked sweet things. Their gefilte fish is the main dish of, of the Jews uh, was sweet. But also their vegetables, their carrots, their tzimmers were sweet. The other Jews didn't like it. But uh, so everybody did have a, some difference, but it was the difference of the place. And then during the 19th century, which was the age of enlightenment, all the countries where the cities didn't allow Jews in, allowed them in. And they allowed them in, in well, everywhere from Berlin to Paris to Moscow, but also to the Hung- uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire. And there they were in Hungary, in Vienna, in Budapest, in uh, Bucharest, you know, in all those cities of the Hungarian, uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire. This is where, in the what I call the Ashkenazi repertoire, all the refined dishes came in. The goulashes, the, well, in every one there were different things, the strudels, the, the latkes, the... Latkes came in very late. Uh, the potatoes came in very way, late into the Jewish world, but it was the food of the poor in the end, but also grand dishes. But so a whole lot of dishes came in, but it was always the same things that stayed within the Jewish culture. Whereas the Sephardim in India, the Jews of India, there are four different cuisines. In Italy, the Jews of Italy, if you go and you see in many parts, regions of Italy, there's always an area or a square called Piazza Judea, Piazza della Sinagoga. There is somehow a motif showing there was a synagogue there. Everywhere where you find this, there's always one or two dishes. So And so every city. So that's why Sephardi cooking is varied. And no wonder it took you 16 years to write this book. My goodness, the amount of research you must have done. It was. But because I was enjoying it, it became more like a hobby, a pleasure. I did, besides working on other, I was working on a television series on the Mediterranean, on the food of Italy, many projects. And one newspaper, a lot or not of newspapers, the Telegraph asked me to go to 15 cities all over the world. And when I told them, you know, I'm, I'm working I've got to now concentrate on my Jewish book or I'll never. And he said, well, everywhere you go, I'll let you stay two days more to look for Jews. And I looked for Jews. I became like a collector. (laughs) It was a way of discovering Jews, but discovering their world, their history. A busy life in food. This has been so great. One more question from me, and then we're going to call it a day on Profiles today. If you could write... One more cookbook about any food in the world that you haven't explored yet. What would it be? Well, I I wonder. It would be France, of course. 
<laughs> but the thing is that because my daughter wants to do one, then I have to keep up. You're going to give it to her. <laughs> yeah. okay. Because she's an artist. And so she's doing it all in painting. And uh, she's doing fantastic work. So I'm dying to do it. But <laughs> You could collaborate. She could paint the pictures of the dishes. I know that's what I would have liked to do. But I think she she would feel that it's a... <laughs> she's called Dibs. Okay. Okay. Claudia Rodin, a uh, cookbook author. She calls herself a food writer, cultural anthropologist, historian, storyteller, whatever you want to call her. She's written 11 cookbooks. What a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak. This is Profiles for WFIU. I'm Annie Corrigan.